0: hear them talked enough about when people do the, this book. The first one is that there is a righteousness of God by faith that's independent, separate from the Torah and obedience. And yet it's found in the Torah and the prophets. And it's seen, Paul says, in the faith of Abraham, who he claims is the father of the Jews and the Gentiles, who believe God's word of promise. And that faith is counted as righteousness. It's a righteousness that's the gift of God's grace and cannot be obtained by works so that no one can boast except in the Lord. And we enter into that grace, Paul says, by faith which has a final goal of our glorification with God and our adoption as adult children that will take place at the resurrection. However, this faith has a process that undergoes testing and trials that bring endurance. And out of that endurance comes character. And out of that character comes proof that our hope is sure and will not disappoint. Really important to understand that. Coming to faith in God does not eliminate difficulties from life. Second thing... Is that because our death is with the Messiah, we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and now alive to God. No longer slaves of sin. Paul goes out of his way to explain that the Torah, the law of God, is holy and good. Nothing wrong with it. But there's another law in our flesh called the law of sin and death that reacts to the Torah when the commandment comes, rises up and floods into a just a gush of sin. As a result, what the Torah itself cannot do, that is, give life, God did in sending his Son, condemning sin in the flesh, freeing us from the law of sin and death, not freeing us from the Torah and the commandments of God, freeing us from the condemnation because of the law of sin and death. That is in our flesh. So we can now move towards full obedience. Just move towards it. But this body of death becomes a problem and has to be crucified every day. So that we wait in hope for the adoption of sons and daughters in the resurrection. Now I bring that up because last week we uh, saw that Paul was returning to the subject of Israel in chapters 9, 10, 11. Uh, We went through chapter 9 last time. We're going to go through chapter 10 today. I'm not happy with the chapter breaks because this leaves us at a point, and I understand that sometimes the chapter breaks and the verses leave us with putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Uh, Really, it's leading into what Paul's going to say in chapter 11. It's a difficult section because of replacement theology in the church, and because people tend to use these verses primarily to justify Calvinism instead of looking at what God is doing with his ancient people Israel and with this influx of Gentiles into the faith. So, there's another problem, and that problem is that people think that Paul is talking about Israel and Judaism and Gentiles in Christianity the way we have it today, and he knows nothing of that. He is talking about the situation that he is in when the gospel is first coming to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Paul's grieved with many of his fellow Jews not accepting the gospel, which he calls the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also the Gentiles. And Paul says he would consider himself being accursed and lost if it were possible to save his fellow kinsmen. He calls them Israelites. And he says to them belongs the adoption of sons. This coming into maturity in in the Lord. The glory and the covenants and the patriarchs and the Torah and the temple service all belongs to them. He's talked about the Jewish advantage Earlier in the book. And he gives us a reason. Why they haven't accepted the gospel. Just one. Of more than one that he's going to talk about. And that reason has been true. Throughout Israel's history. And I think it can be said. Of the church as well. I'm often bothered with. People tell me. How disobedient. Israel was in the wilderness. Have you read church history? So. We've got to be careful here, all right? God has mercy on whom He wills. He has compassion on whom He wills. He hardens whom He wills. And He does this for His glory and His eternal purpose. Not everyone is saved. Not all Jews and all Christians have faith. So he talks about the idea that God is making a statement. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. Uh, the elder will, will uh, the the younger will rule the elder. He talks about things that God is doing, and then, of course, he anticipates our objection: Who's resisted His will? And Paul's answer is that the Creator and the Redeemer can make from the same lump of clay vessels of honor and vessels of wrath. Now, remember, Paul's already concluded. That Jews and Gentiles are all sinners. So the clay is the same. He is making vessels of wrath from sinful clay. And he is patiently enduring with them. As he did with Pharaoh. Who hardened his heart, hardened his heart. That was his pattern. And God then when he was buckling under the pressure. God hardened his heart. He didn't really change his nature. He confirmed his nature. That is human nature. That's the clay that we are of. But he also makes vessels of honor. That he gives his mercy and his grace and the riches of his glory to. Because he has prepared us for his glory. Both Jews and Gentiles. So then we ended with Paul quoting Hosea to explain the inclusion of the Gentiles was always in God's plan. So it appears that the Gentiles, certainly not all of them, and even now, not all who claim to be Christian, have attained the righteousness of faith. But Paul asks, why hasn't Israel? And he says that the answer is, because they pursued it by works, And not by faith. And this also was in God's plan. Paul quotes that there is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense laid in Zion. The one who has faith in him will not be disappointed. And we saw last week how Peter talked about that. I wanted to reiterate this because I want you to have that context as we go into this chapter. And then I'm going to repeat it again next week as we go into Paul's conclusions about this. And again, I'm, I'm a little bothered by chapter 10's end where it ends. I would have ended it earlier, but then it would be less than 21 verses. And if I go beyond it, I don't have time. So I'm stuck with that, and we'll try to clean that up as best we can next week. So we pick it up at chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, where Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, he's talking about Israel, is for salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For, the, for Messiah, or Christ, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'll talk about that verse in a minute. Paul repeats his concern for Israel and their salvation. He knows, because he's one of them, that they have a zeal for God. He certainly had a zeal for God before he responded to to the gospel, but it was not according to knowledge. And he says that this incorrect knowledge, this ignorance, is that they're not aware of the righteousness of God, even though it's testified to in the Torah and in the prophets. And therefore they're trying, they're seeking to To establish their own righteousness for the glory of God. But that voids the righteousness of God. Now Paul in saying this I think wants to make a statement that is almost null and void in all of our translations. And I have fought the translation committee for years on this. And I have not won, so I'm going to do it now. (laughs) Verse 4 Messiah, the word end there in Greek is telos. It means end in the sense of the focus, the purpose, the object, and the goal, it does not mean the conclusion and removal. But translators leave it in there because there's enough replacement theology in the church to say that Jesus died on the cross to end the law. And he did. But not the Torah, the law of sin and death that's in our flesh. Paul says that clearly. And it's not it's not put in, in these texts. So let me read this verse. For Messiah is the focus and the purpose and the goal of, Of the Torah for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, why do I say that's what Paul's meaning? Because he's now going to explain it. He's going to give us those details. And we pick that up in verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, based on the Torah, based on the covenants and the commandments, shall live by that righteousness. He says, but the righteousness based on faith is different. It speaks this way. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. For with the heart... A person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him, he's quoting that stumbling block passage, will not be disappointed. And there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call upon him. Because whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what Paul's saying here is that the Torah expresses two forms of righteousness one based on obedience, that brings about blessing and cursing, and obedience gives life and blessing if one meets its standard. But he's already explained. That obedient righteousness can't be achieved either by Jews or by Gentiles. The law of sin and death in our flesh makes Torah observant to the point of life impossible. We all fall short of the glory of God. So Paul's going to quote from Deuteronomy. I'd like you to turn with me there. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And as I said last time, when Paul quotes these texts, he will quote what he thinks is the underlining important part, but he's got the context that he assumes you already know. And since often Christians don't already know this context... While Paul's going to pick it up at verse 11, 30, 11,, I'm going to pick it up at verse one. Moses went and spoke these words to the people, said, "I'm 120 years old today. oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading 31. I did that. done that a couple times. I got to get new glasses. These are new glasses, they're not working. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, you will you will call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord has banished you. Okay, I want you to catch this. Moses has already told them, I've given you the commandments of God and you can't handle it. You are not going to obey. And he is going to remove you from the land. And he's going to send you among the nations. And in that place you're going to call upon me. And I'm going to hear you. And I'm going to draw you back. So that's what he's saying. When you've already experienced this. When you realize that the law of sin and death in your flesh can't help you do the Torah, you will cry out for mercy for me and I will hear you, Israel. And you will return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you and your sons. In other words, I'll bring you back and you'll fully obey these commandments. Well, something's going to have to happen. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and will have compassion on you. Will gather you again from all the peoples that the Lord your God has scattered you. And if the outcasts are in the ends of the earth, that's like Santa Monica, you know, Bakersfield. uh, There the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you will possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Look at verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict the curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe his commands, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will abundantly prosper you. That's the blessing of obedience. And the offspring of your body, the offspring of your cattle, the produce of your ground. And the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he did over the fathers. Since you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and statutes, which are written in this book of the law. If you turn your heart and soul to God. This is the commandment I'm commanding you today. Okay, you with me? So Paul picks it up at verse 11. This is the commandment I command you today. It's not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven and get it for us and make us hear it? that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is near you in your mouth, in your heart, that you may observe it. What is he talking about? Moses is saying, you can't do this. You cannot obey God. You have got a problem. All mankind has that problem. And you are going to fail God. But He's not going to fail you, Israel. And you will turn to the Lord. And you will humble yourself. And you will cry out in your desperation. As you call on the name of the Lord. And the one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's talking to Israel. not talking to us. So, I want to keep reading because Paul knows that that his readers know the rest of this. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. in that I command you to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, keep His statutes, His commandments... But if your heart turns away and you will not obey and you're drawn away and worship other gods, I declare that you will perish. So I call, verse 19, on heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. I want you to catch this. Moses says, I place before you life and death Blessing and curse both righteousness. There's the righteousness of faith that brings life as opposed to death. And there's the blessing of obedience, the, the the righteousness of obedience that brings blessing and brings curse. And Moses says, I want you to choose life. He doesn't say choose the blessing, choose the obedience. He says, I want you to choose life so that you will live. Because faith must precede obedience. That's what Paul was talking about. Israel had somehow gotten the idea that somehow they could earn the promises of God. You don't earn the promises of God. You trust God that he keeps his promise. And out of gratitude for that, and believing on that, you struggle towards obedience. Now, Paul does this a little different. He says, we'll go back to Romans. He expands on this when he says, what does the scripture say? Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And he says that is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. I think that what Paul is talking about here is the resurrection. And the incarnation. We understand it that way. Israel reading the scriptures would understand it as the one who is going to be sent. They are waiting for that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because he will bring the Lord's salvation, the Lord's Yeshua. So I think that Paul's talking here to the Romans about incarnation and resurrection. We don't have time to speak about that now. But Paul says that this believing in God, having raised Jesus from the dead and confessing that he is Lord, results in life and salvation. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to pick it up at verse 14. Because this is where Paul begins to explain to us this distinction between what's happening at his time. Is that more and more Jews are rising up against the gospel. More and more Gentiles are receiving the gospel. And there's a real danger that the Gentiles will get arrogant and think, wow, we've got faith, and they don't. If you know church history, you know that's not true. Paul's not talking about church history. He's talking about what's going on at that time. We'll apply it next week to our times. So Paul says this. How then do they call on him whom they have not believed? And how do they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word regarding Christ. So Paul's already indicated that turning to God, that Israel will turn to God in believing that he will send Messiah, and there will be a resurrection, the kingdom will come. That's the essence of this faith. We know it specifically, but it is hinted at and spoken of all through the scriptures, and that's why Paul says that uh, in verse seventeen. Uh, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word regarding Messiah. Now we use these verses a lot for missions. How are they here without a preacher? Paul's not talking about that. He's again addressing the questions that people bring up. And he's quoting that the message did go out. In Isaiah 52 verse 7 he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel. And we've looked at this before. So I'm not going to have you turn there. But I'm going to remind you of what the gospel is. In Isaiah 52 verse 7. The gospel is. An announcement of peace. An announcement of goodness. An announcement of salvation. The word there in the Hebrew is Yeshua. And telling Zion. Israel and Jerusalem. Your God reigns. It is the hope of the kingdom, of all that God's going to do. It's what Israel cried out for on Palm Sunday. Son of David, save us now. It's a belief that God brings salvation by grace through faith. And obedience comes afterwards as an act of gratitude. So we have to be careful here. Paul's not speaking about the gospel as you and I have altered it what well, we haven't altered. It. It's been altered as we've got it down through the years. We'll talk more about that next week. So now Paul's going to say, so did they not hear? This is where we get into really a painful, section of the scripture and I want to be really careful here. These verses are used to condemn Israel and Paul is using it to explain Israel. Verse 18 through 21. But I say surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth And their words to the end of the world. Paul quotes Psalm 19. But I say, surely Israel didn't know, did they? And then Moses, he says, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Israel is very bold and says, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You can see why I hate ending with that verse. Paul's about to make an argument. And we're going to look at that argument next week. I'm going to approximate it a little bit now because I want you to catch what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, oh yes, they heard. Not all, but some have. He's going to talk about a remnant. God has always been faithful to Israel. He has always kept a group reserved to Him who have humbled themselves, who await the Messiah and seek the salvation, the Yeshua of the Lord. And Paul's going to tell us why some of them don't fully see it. Though they are hoping desperately for it. So he says Israel knew. They knew by the creation, as he quotes Psalm 19. Go back to chapter 1 where Paul says, we're all without excuse. We know that there is a powerful God who is the creator and judge of the whole world. For us to turn and worship the creation rather than the creator. Shows our foolishness. And then he says, Moses says, and this quote is from Deuteronomy 32. So I want to go back to Deuteronomy. Very important that you spend time in Deuteronomy 28 through the end. When you're looking at that Paul's commentary that's Romans, his commentary on on the Torah and the prophets and the, and the purpose of God. In Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses. Moses is telling the struggle between God and Israel. Israel and God and all the things that's going on. And when we get to verse 21, he says... They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That's us, folks. We be the fools. God says, Israel's given me trouble. I think what I'll do is I'll make them jealous. I'll show what I promised to them to some who are not a nation, not a people, people who have no understanding, no background of who I am. They will come and they will see me, and Israel will go, What is going on? And Paul's going to push this as the as the apostle to the Gentiles, he's going to say, I want to magnify this, because I, I want to provoke them to jealousy. Now, next week we'll talk about this. You and I don't pro- provoke Israel to jealousy. We either provoke them to total rejection, or more often than not, we, we just have no significance to them. Because we do not handle the things of God the way we should. And so we make the gospel in some ways unavailable to them. Now Paul also quotes Isaiah. And I wanna I wanna catch that too. And the reason I'm saying this is gotta remember that when Paul is writing, there is no New Testament. Paul believes that the scriptures that he had were fully sufficient. And that the message could be seen in that context. So in Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2, God says this, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask me. I permitted myself to be found by those Who did not seek me. I said here am I. Here am I. To a nation that didn't call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long. To a rebellious people. Now what Paul is saying is. There's two things going on here. Moses says I'm going to provoke you. To jealousy. And why is he doing it? Because Israel has lost its way. Israel has reached a point where they think that their own righteousness can commend them to God instead of His grace. Now we're about to enter into a passage where Paul is going to say, and this is why I said I'd like to go in there, because Paul says, has God rejected His people? No! And Paul's proof is, I'm an Israelite. And I was in that condition. So we're going to get to that next week. So I don't want you to see a conclusion here. I'm just running out of time. So Paul says, there's a relationship between faithful Gentiles, not all Gentiles are faithful, and faithless Israel, not all Israel is faithless. We have to be careful here. Not all Gentiles have faith. I could say not all Christians have faith. We have Christians who think they can earn their way to God's approval. We are the same lump. We we have the same errors in this. And not all Jews are without faith though we have been taught that that's the case. I once was in a meeting, Messianic Southern Baptist meeting, and we invited one of the main professors at one of our seminaries to come. And he was just, his replacement theology was just right in your face. And one of the guys said, excuse me, but what about Israel? And this guy said this. They had their chance. They had their chance? I raised my hand. I said, do you know who you're talking to? There are Jews and Gentiles who believe that Israel is central to God's plan here. And then he went dispensational on us and said, oh, later. God has never been faithless to Israel. This is, he is still working through them and in them. Just because you and I don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. God's doing something bigger than both of us, Jews and Christians. So what Paul's going to describe about Israel in his day, I think can be said about Christians in our day. There are those who approach God on the basis of their own righteousness by works And these are lost people, whether they spout the Sidur or the Christian prayer book. And there are people, Jews and Christians, who have faith in God and in His promises and seek His salvation by grace and expect that He will bring it all to pass and aren't so arrogant that they think they know how He's doing it. They trust God to do what God says he will do. Instead of we've got it figured out and he can only do it the way we have figured it out. Paul's going to explain about God's dealing with Israel and the nations in the next chapter. And he's going to talk about the remnant of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles and a future when he says all Israel will be saved. And he's going to say the most bizarre verse I know of, at least for me. When he talks about Israel, they are enemies of the gospel for your sake, for my sake as a Gentile. But for the promises of God, they are beloved for the sake of the Father's. Now, there's something bigger going on there, folks. And we've got to get out of the way and not boast against the natural branches. All of that comes out next week. I hate having to stop at this verse that looks like it's condemning Israel. It's simply describing their struggle. And you've had a struggle, and I've had a struggle. And if the last verse was my rebellion, where would I be? But God has the last verse. Let's pray.